And in the less crazy but still pretty concerning and likely dangerous corner, the challenger Nikki Haley. We've all been operating under the assumption that the Republican primary is over, but have we spoken too soon? And what would it mean if Nikki Haley were the nominee? The Republicans want to question Hunter Biden under oath, but they don't want any cameras in there. Seems odd and sort of against type, doesn't it? There's a reason Hunter Biden is demanding it be public. We'll get into it. Some Democrats are panicking about Biden's age, but is it possible that panic is misdirected and should be pointed at perceptions of the economy instead? Welcome back to the podcast that helps you, the 54% of the country that votes for progress in every election, convince your conservative friends and family members to join our majority. This is Majority 54. Well, Jason, I think a lot of people are asking right now, can Donald Trump be beaten? And up until now, I think you and I have both thought probably not. And actually, almost right. certainly not. Now, a couple of things have happened this week that at least warrant us revisiting that assumption. And I think the biggest is that Nikki Haley appears to be picking up some momentum at precisely the time you want to be picking up momentum. So if you think about it, November is right right when you want it, right? It's actually when Obama in 2007 first overtook Hillary Clinton in the polls in Iowa. It's when I think, I think that's when he did the Jefferson Jackson dinner speech, which really led to the wave of momentum that carried him through those early states, right? And mm -hmm. people know this, but the key is to win the early states one at a time, right? You don't have to win the entire country, right? National polls really should be ignored largely and you should really focus on the early states because traditionally, if you do well in those, uh, then one state after another starts to pay more and more attention. And the people who win or overperform in those early states, an emphasis on overperform. You don't really even need to win the first state. You just need to beat expectations. So all this to say is the Koch Network endorsed Nikki Haley this week. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is the Koch Network is the biggest network of donors in the Republican Party. They have huge infrastructure, both in the field, direct mail, fundraising, ads. They're also a signal to other donors in the Republican Party that, hey, this is the candidate that you should support. And this comes at a time when, by all accounts, there are a lot of donors on the sidelines waiting to see who's going to be the non-Trump candidate within the donor world. So I think that's really, really interesting. They also are selling her as the candidate who will have the best uh, down ticket effects. And I think they're probably right. They're, you know, Emily Seidel, who runs Americans for Prosperity Action, wrote that uh, Haley would be the key to winning independent moderate voters. And uh, they wrote a really fascinating polling memo, which we'll get to in a second. And I'll walk you through some of the stuff that they have in this polling memo which I think is really interesting because they have better data than almost anybody given the amount they invest in this kind of stuff. So they have tracking polls and more granular data than even some of the media organizations have access to. And they seem to think this is their best bet. Do you think they're right? Yeah, I don't think there's much question. I mean, part of it is because Nikki Haley is and always has been a pretty formidable candidate. I mean, when you look at what she did to become governor of South Carolina, what she endured when she was the governor there, uh, when you look at uh, just the way she performs, but also when you look at the fact that nobody really that talented wants to run against Trump. So it's like, you know, getting because you got to in this primary, you got to get the silver medal before you can go for the gold medal. Right. You have to become the leader among all the runner ups uh, in round one. And we're kind of almost to the end of round one. Right. Round one began with everybody saying the front runner for runner-up is Ron DeSantis. And then there were a bunch of other people who were either running because they just really wanted to derail Trump, like Chris Christie, uh, or because they thought this is their chance to get well-known and famous and end up with uh, you know a celebrity following on the right, Vivek Ramaswamy, or the very, very small crowd of people like Nikki Haley who were like, I think Trump is terrible and somebody should stop him. And also, I want to be president and think I could actually do it and beat him. Um, and I think it was her and DeSantis, basically, in that category. And DeSantis, it turns out, is cringy uh, and as a result is, is faltering. And so really, she just had to beat, you know, one guy. And that one guy is Ron DeSantis, um, which makes it a little bit easier. Uh, and, and it looks like she's got a good chance to do that. And then 
that's when it's not even it's not even accurate to say that's when you get the one-on-one showdown with Donald Trump. If you can consolidate that vote, that's when you get the opportunity to campaign for getting people to consider you alongside Donald Trump, right. which is which is harder. Um, yes. Yeah. But she- to, to your question, I would just say uh, the prospect of like if, if we woke up tomorrow and it was like we have to run against Nikki Haley, I would be a lot more worried about losing the election. Um, I have a second thought on that, but I think we'll save it because yeah, it's coming up. Yeah, tonight. there's the question is like worried about losing the election, but then also what what are the stakes of the election, right? right. Which we'll get to. Like I think the stakes change dramatically. People will hate this point, which we'll get to. Be ready, people, to, to really hate what I'm about to say on that front. But before I get there, let me give you some data on this. This polling memo is great. By the way, I love polling memos because they're always two to three pages. They're never very long. Now, they have data <laughs> yeah, going from they, – they, they have data going – Polls, charts. polls however, awful to yeah. read. Like, yeah, the, the cross-tabs. The actual yeah. read. Yeah, the cross-tabs are terrible. But. The, so they go from early August to November in Iowa and New Hampshire. And Haley goes from 6% early August, 10% late August. This is Iowa, by the way. 6% early August, 10% late August, 11% September, 13% October, 17% November. And this is just as she's starting to unload her considerable war chest of ads. And then the unlimited amount of money that the Coke Network can pour into this. And most importantly for Iowa, this is a state that um, infrastructure really matters. and. My assumption is the Coke network infrastructure is incredibly strong in Iowa and, you know, pulling people to the caucuses really matters because they're generally very low turnout. Like people who, who aren't aware of this, I've, I've had the benefit of being in a caucus because you could be a non-voting caucus member and still participate. It's a really crazy rule, at least back in 2007, <laughs> this is true. I could actually be in there arguing with people and I was in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Actually, it was in Wright County, which is very rural. Shout out to J.D. Shelton. I think he's represented Wright County before. But they, I would it'd be in the caucus, and, I, and I'm allowed to be there as an Obama representative. So I'm like arguing with Edwards supporters as they become non-viable or whatever. And they're like, wait a minute, do you live here? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so it's like they train you to try to do it in a way that doesn't backfire. Now, okay, so 6 to 17% in a matter of three months. That's huge. Now, if you follow mm-hmm. that math... She's going to get close to Trump with that math if that kind of trend continues. Uh, now, New Hampshire is even more However, interesting. Yeah. Before we get onto that, can I let me throw a little cold water on that as I look at these numbers? Because you see, yes, starting in early August, she's at 6%. And like you said, then it goes 10, 11, 13, 17. But now I'm going to read you some other numbers 40, 44, 44, 42, 44. Those are Trump's numbers during those same, that's those same times, which means. Nikki Haley is receiving her support from other, and this is not surprising, from other people who don't want to vote for Trump. She's peeling support off of folks who were with other folks. So what it means is, yes, it's possible, but she's going to have to like completely consolidate the anti-Trump vote because his, his vote share doesn't seem to be doing anything but either stabilizing or going up, which means it leaves, what, 56% of the electorate seems at least disinclined at this point to say they're voting for Trump. And she's got to get dang near all of them, uh, which is hard to do with other candidates in the race. Well, I think she just needs to come close to Trump in Iowa and then beat him in New Hampshire. She she beats him in New Hampshire. Okay, yeah, let's go back to your your theory. South Carolina is her state, right? So let's assume Mm -hmm, if she wins New Hampshire, she wins South Carolina. Not a given because South Carolina is the most conservative of the states. So I do think that there's a crazy scenario here where she wins New Hampshire and loses South Carolina. I don't want to discount mm-hmm. that fact, but let's but we're talking about possible pathways, right? We all yeah. know that Trump is the likely candidate, right? So let's say she gets into the 30s against Trump and DeSantis dramatically underperforms in a way that either he has to drop out or more likely he just becomes like in the eyes of the voters an afterthought. So it becomes right. a two-person race. These New Hampshire numbers tell me she could she could win this one. So mm-hmm. she goes from 6 to 12 to 19 to 20 to 25 from early August to November. So 6 to 25. Huge. And New Hampshire is a state that's really good for Nikki Haley. And in this memo, they talk about how in New Hampshire, uh, she is by far the most likable candidate in the race. And they also talk about in New Hampshire 
uh, and this is a double-edged sword for Haley, but you want these numbers, uh, which is how much do you know about a candidate and understand the candidate? 80% Trump know a lot. Um, 50% people say they know Ron DeSantis a lot. Nikki Haley, 41%. And 59% saying they know uh, very little or nothing about Nikki Haley. Now, obviously, that is space to be defined. If you're her opponents, you're going to try to define her in negative ways. If you're Nikki Haley, you're going to define yourself in positive ways. But two things about that. One is, you just want the opportunity, right? Like you may not win that opportunity, but at least there's not a baked in perception of you. And two is this is where the Coke stuff is relevant with this kind of money, this kind of support, that kind of space gives you an opportunity, gives you an opening. So if there is a Haley, like, look, we, I'm conditioned to want to believe that this is true for reasons we'll get into in a second, but I'm just saying it's possible. Like Iowa, she gets close. I would be surprised if she won, but also pulling in Iowa, like, these like when people get into those caucus rooms, you never know what the reallocations and all that kind of stuff. So let's say she gets close in Iowa. She wins New Hampshire. She wins South Carolina. Now we've got a race. That's a race, you know? And, and my argument for how she could win South Carolina has little to do with, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's probably the most conservative state that you're going to have, certainly in the early primaries. But you know, she was the governor there, and you have to ask yourself the question of how many folks are inclined toward her who aren't voting for her because they just don't think she has a chance. And that's right. what New Hampshire does. It did it for, it, it's done it for a lot of people. And so, uh, or, and Iowa can do the same thing. I mean, like, if, if, they, if they don't screw up the counting uh, in um, 2020 and Buttigieg and everybody knows that Pete Buttigieg won the Iowa caucus, like, you could have a completely different result, right? Um, so, you end up with that momentum, and then people in South Carolina who may have kind of liked her anyway are like, oh, wow, it's not a wasted vote. Maybe she could actually win. So I do think you're right. I think that's possible. Um, and I think the other interesting thing, to go back against the point I made a minute ago, is if you look at Iowa and New Hampshire, what they have in common is Trump seems to be very leveled out at 40 to 44%, which means there's a, the majority of people, at least polled, the majority of people who are planning to vote in that primary would like to vote for somebody who's not him. Uh, doesn't mean they will, but it means their first instinct is they'd like to choose somebody else. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. Big best case scenario for, and, and okay. One risk actually, before I get to the best case scenario for one risk for Haley among the minefield of risks is that she's going to get into a knife fight with Ron DeSantis now, and she's going to win that knife fight. Mm-hmm. I have all expectations of this. But, and by the way, this AFP memo, they have no problem ripping DeSantis, which if you're DeSantis, like, it's funny to me. Like, they literally just, the memo is about why he's not viable and she's viable. Like, just think about the psychology mm-hmm. of that from DeSantis's perspective, like how much water he's probably carried for conservative donors over the years. Uh, yeah. he's not, it's crazy. Um, and ostensibly, he... AFP and some of these people need Ron DeSantis for their agenda in Florida and still have no problem just totally ripping him in this memo, which shows how powerful they are because they know that DeSantis could do very little. It shows two things. It shows how powerful they are. And forgive me, uh, a little bit of a sidebar, but as someone who's been a candidate and is still seen by many people, even though I don't view myself right now as a politician, I view myself as a nonprofit executive and an activist and like an amateur baseball player uh, and a dad. I know that people still see me that way. And, and it's just a sidebar like, you're just a commodity. Like once you've run for mm-hmm. office and once people see you in that way, like there are friends of his that are part of this Coke network, like people he's probably vacationed with, with Clarence Thomas or somebody. Right. And it's just because you just get seen your, your orange juice futures. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's all you are. Uh, just a funny part of being a candidate, but thanks. Now. Okay. Here's, here's the picture, right? Here's the picture. She gets close in Iowa, wins New Hampshire, wins South Carolina. Now this this starts to happen as Trump's legal cases start to heat up. He's mm-hmm. he's yeah. He's getting some unfavorable judgments. We got to revisit the calendar to see when the actual verdicts will come in, right? People start to think it, they got a little bit wobbly about Trump and it's not that they hate Trump. They're just like, "Hmm. Let's just move past this." Enough people say that. And remember these primaries last forever, man. They go all the way through the spring. And she just needs to stay in the game, collect um, delegates and stay viable long enough. And one of two things could happen. One is she outright beats Trump, 
it's just hard, but doable if the right scenarios happen here. Or two, she's the second largest delegate getter, and because of Trump's various legal issues, in a brokered convention, she comes out on top because she's the person with the largest claim. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what if I'm in in Haley's camp, that's what I'm pushing for. Yeah, I'll give you a third option. I'm not. Well, anyway, a third option. He dies. I mean, yeah. he's old. Yeah, um, that is an option you know? for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's like as as or as the the more euphemistic way that uh, acts that the actuarial <laughs> the actuarial reality. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, which I'm not saying that's limited to him. I mean, but you know, right? Obviously, yeah. like that could end up. I don't want I don't want that for anybody. But I mean, it could end up happening on the Democratic side. It could, you know. So yeah, there, look, you know what I think of when I think of this kind of stuff. Uh, I think of. When I got, when I decided not to run for president and instead jumped into the uh, race for mayor of Kansas City, everybody was like, this race is over, including me. I was like, this race is over. 10 people running. I, you know, I'm not bragging. I'm saying when you go from running for president to running for mayor of your hometown, like if you're not the prohibitive front runner, like what, what the hell were you doing in the first place? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I was like, well, that's over uh, for everybody. And honestly, like i like I, a little bit, I was like, why, why are people still running? You know, um, I wasn't like, how dare they? I was just like, oh, I wonder why. And the answer is because you never know what's going to happen. Because then 99 days later, I announced that I needed to go to the VA for help with PTSD. And I dropped out of public life for like eight months. And as a result, or Quentin Lucas, who we've had on the show, who's a friend who became mayor, like he probably didn't have much of a shot. And I know people who reached up to him and were like, why are you running? And he was like, oh, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And that was right. So you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about what we should want to happen in this primary, which I think is, is an interesting question. Yeah, that's that the, we have the real question here. Absolutely no control over, but just yeah, yeah. In, in, given it's a slow news week, let's dive into it. So here's how to think about this. I, I think there's probably this is this is the two stage process. One is uh, who would you rather, if you're just thinking about Biden's chances, who would you rather have as an opponent? I think it's unquestionably Trump. If you're just thinking yeah. about Biden's chances, yeah. The second question is what happens though when you bake in the differences between what those people would be like as president. And that's where I think it gets more interesting. And just focusing on Haley versus Trump here, I would obviously, I would obviously vote for Biden over anybody here, so it's stipulated. But, mm-hmm. but what world would I rather have? Let's throw out some numbers. Let's say Nikki Haley has a 75% chance of beating Biden, which I think is probably fair. She's polling way ahead of anybody else in the Republican field against Biden. And most of those people are on balance if the election were held today, likely to beat Biden according to almost any poll you see, right? Mm-hmm. Interestingly- I, I would, I would, I'd be less. I'd say it's more like fifty-five to sixty percent, just because I don't think you can poll the, um, I don't think you can poll just how deeply people feel about a extremism, but b abortion. Um, yeah, but let's still. Let's, I think let's stipulate than, that there's like than, a than even chance. Let's say there's a ten to twenty percent difference between Trump probability and Haley probability, something like that, Whatever, sure. wherever yeah, you I start agree. your numbers, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think we all know what the Trump presidency would look like, right? Revenge tour, potential end of our democracy. I don't mean to be <laughs> extreme here, but I do think that's true. Haley is a pretty, here's, here's my argument that people are going to hate. Haley's not going to steal elections. She's not going to like go after the deep state this is going to be the worst clip of all time if I'm proven wrong, at which point I'll probably be in the jungles <laughs> of Costa Rica hiding anyway. But, um, or in the gulag, because yeah, if you're proven gulag. wrong, she was uh, putting people in the gulag anyway. Um, my, my assumption is that she's not going to be those things. People are, I, I understand people who feel differently, and I, and I actually very much respect that argument, and I'm not a mind reader, but I'm just, this is my, my best case. This is my like, best read on who she is as a person. She'll be a very far-right president, probably more far right than anybody other than Trump we've ever had. But she won't do this sort of like massive erosion to the institutions of our country and the this sort of, you know, um, 
you know, free and fair elections and handing over of power and like, you know, like going after military officials and basically doing like the Netanyahu type of routine that Trump has been doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's worth it, meaning I want her to win this primary. Obviously, I would want her to lose the general, but I would want her to win the primary. I would rather take a harder race in the general than than an easier one against Trump, but that would lead to catastrophic possibilities afterwards. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't think this should be that controversial. If what you care about is the country, like if what you care about is winning and what you care about is the Democratic Party, then okay, then you want the most vulnerable possible opponent every time. But then that doesn't really make you that much difference than the folks who just want to own the, own the libs. Like if all yeah. you want to do is, is, is have the other side lose, like, okay. But if what you want is, if what you're nostalgic for is a time when elections mattered a lot because of the policies that would be put in place, and yes, people would be hurt if, if people put in policies that were bad, but elections didn't have the survival of the country at stake in every single election. If that's what you want, and that is my number one priority, um, then I don't think it—I don't think it's controversy at all. Controversial at all to want Trump to lose in absolutely everything he does. I want Trump to lose his trials because he's guilty. I want Trump to lose his elections because he shouldn't be in charge of anything ever. I honestly want him to lose his business because apparently he's been victimizing people with it. That's what I want. Um, So yeah, I want Nikki Haley to beat Donald Trump. And then I want to work my tail off to beat Nikki Haley. Like I want, I want the nineties and the two thousands back when bad people, when people got elected and did bad things, but they did survivable things. Um, That's what I want. And, uh, and, and I want to work really hard to beat those people, you know? Well, okay. With that said, uh, we are going to come back from break, and we are going to answer a question, though, on this topic, which is, given what you said, should Democrats in states like New Hampshire, which I believe allows crossover vote, crossover vote for Nikki Lee? We will answer that question when we come back from break. If you're like my wife, Diana, morning coffee is non-negotiable, but she was tired of waiting in line for an overpriced cup or settling for gritty, bitter coffee at home, and now she switched to using AeroPress, and I don't think she's ever going back. It's so easy and convenient and incredibly unique. Uh, she said to me the other day, she was like, I didn't know we could do this at home. This is this is awesome. Saves her a bunch of time in the morning. AeroPress is like a French press, only it's better. It's the only press that uses a patented three-in-one brew technology, combining the best of several brew methods into one portable device for a completely unique and delicious flavor profile, smooth, rich, and full-bodied without the bitterness and grit found in other presses. And as a bonus, AeroPress can brew thousands of recipes. AeroPress travels better than others too. It's compact and incredibly durable. That means that you'll never have to endure terrible coffee at the hotel, on the job, or on an adventure again. It brews and cleans in less than two minutes. You just add medium fine coffee grounds, pour in hot water, stir for five seconds, brew for 30 seconds. Then you press it into your favorite mug and enjoy. There's a reason why AeroPress is the barista's favorite home brewing tool. AeroPress is the best reviewed coffee press on the planet with more than 55,000 five-star reviews. Thoughtful, proven, and under 50 bucks, AeroPress is the perfect gift or stocking stuffer for every coffee lover in your life this holiday season. Don't settle for less than the best. They'll love it. AeroPress is shockingly affordable, less than 50 bucks, and we've got an incredible offer for our audience. Visit AeroPress.com slash majority. That's A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash majority and save up to 20%. That's AeroPress.com slash majority to save up to 20%. It's time to ditch the drive through toss the French press, and say yes to better mornings fueled by better coffee. AeroPress ships to the U.S. and over 60 countries around the world, and we thank AeroPress for sponsoring our show. If you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you know that I've been drinking AG1 for years, and it's the first thing I drink in the morning, and it not only replaces my multivitamin, 
vitamins, but it also includes prebiotics, probiotics, and digestive enzymes for gut support, magnesium and B vitamins for energy support, adaptogens to balance stress, and vitamin C and zinc to help with immune health, which is so important this time of year. And I've been drinking AG1 for years, long before we've partnered for this podcast, and I recommend it and have for a long time. I've recommended it to so many of my friends, including Jason, before we started doing this podcast. And I hear the same thing from people who start drinking AG1, which is they feel more energetic than they've ever before. They feel healthier than they've ever been before. So if you want to take ownership over your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, 3K2, and five AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Those come in handy this time of year when you're hopping on an airplane, which is the most important time to drink AG1. So go to drinkag1.com slash majority. That's drinkag1.com slash majority to check it out. All right, Jason, there's a new pack called Primary Pivot, which is encouraging Democratic voters to temporarily switch their party affiliations to undeclared so they could vote against Trump in the GOP primary. And New Hampshire happens to be one of 29 states that allow independents to pick either party's primary in each election. Uh, and I think uh, some people um, you know, are kind of of this camp of this woman named Cora Small from New Hampshire who said she's a lifelong Democrat. She switched to undeclared and she said, I think by voting Republican, at least you can get Donald Trump out of there. I think it's dangerous to have him involved in any way. <laughs> That's Cora's <laughs> opinion. I kind of with Cora. I uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and I also read the Jamie Dimon piece that you put in the outline where he was saying even liberal Democrats, you know, should go vote for Haley. Um, and you know, I'm in no way persuaded by like one of the richest bank CEOs uh, telling me what I should do, but. Uh, I don't know what I would do if I were a voter in New Hampshire. It would be pretty hard for me to go vote a Republican ballot in anything. But on the other hand, I kind of like the idea of getting the chance to vote against Trump whenever possible. Like it's kind yes. of hard to impeach the the intention of just like or just sort of having the motto of like, well, whenever Donald Trump's on a ballot, I do whatever I legally yes. can do to cast a ballot against him. I. I think that's a reasonable position. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, the, you have to grab an oar and go vote in the Republican primary, but I think it's a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, you can't get mad at that. I mean, people will get mad at it, but, you know, New Hampshire's a little tricky because Biden actually has like a weird situation there. Where I don't fully understand with a lot, like, yes, they should run up against a bunch of people because it's really easy to get on the ballot, but he's still going to win that state and he'll win the primary. So the question is, yeah, do what you can. I, I'm, I'm for this. I... I'm a little bit less of the diamond camp where I think like Jamie Diamond is implying that like big donors and democratic donors and stuff get behind Haley and all that. I always think that has a is a like that can backfire yeah. because then the Republicans pick up on that, which they may pick up on this. <laughs> Maybe this will be in an yeah, ad yeah, they will. one day. They will. Yeah. They're gonna they're gonna definitely talk about this. But yes, I agree with you. I think it it is a little it feels a little strange like look there's not a shortage of money on the right okay right. so like i don't feel any any save your at money all save your money duty. for the yeah. democratic the general election exactly yeah. like cuz you could vote drive. twice we we can only vote once in a primary and the primary is settled right so right. It, it's the thing with your money is you could put that in a bank or an interest and then spend it in the general election. That's the best thing right. to do here. Uh, all right. Well, a couple more things on this primary. Um, DeSantis appears to be in a tailspin here. Uh, the head of his super PAC, which had effectively been his campaign, um, was resigned, fired. We don't really know. This Chris Jankowski. Um, and at the same time, and this, this is a PAC with a ton of money in it. And at the same time, they're running what seems to be really sloppy ads against Nikki Haley that say Nikki's not who say she says she is and you know, features like footage of her speaking at some event at Furman with Hillary Clinton and all that. And I'm just like, there got to be more effective attacks than that. I know that Republicans hate Hillary Clinton, but I think that – I don't know if you've seen this ad. It's just not a great ad. <laughs> No, but I can imagine it. It's really, you know, I've seen a yeah. version of it like 500 times for, right. you know, uh, I mean, I've been in ads where they just link me to Hillary Clinton. So right. <laughs> it, right. it, it's, it's pretty, 
par for the course. Um, yeah, look, Ron DeSantis is, uh, he's in the chase scene in a movie. He's in the part where you run through the kitchen and you pull down all the pots and pans behind you to try and slow down the cops. And that's like your best move at that point, right? That, that's where Ron DeSantis is. Um, it's not going well uh, at all. He's not running against Trump. Now he's running against Nikki Haley for second. Um, right. So, you know, it's, it's a wild card play-in game. Um, it's not good for him. Uh, but, and, and I want to revisit just for a moment you and I, it's gonna. Some people are gonna read this as you and I are saying Nikki Haley. It would be okay if Nikki Haley were president. Yeah, of course That's, not. Yeah, we're saying it might be survivable. Yes, for the country, yeah. it's she's gonna do bad things. Nikki Haley is gonna appoint people to the Supreme Court if she gets the opportunity. They're gonna be for everything we're against. She is going to, um, you know, appoint lower court judges who are gonna say photo ID is fine and you can go further on it. She's gonna do those things. Um. But that's what a Republican politician would do, and that is bad. But if that, if not led by Donald Trump, if instead led by a Republican politician who wants to win re-election and doesn't think that the way to do that is to only do it with the right wing, then what you have is a Republican politician with the emphasis on politician. And yeah. politicians tend to, and that's what Nikki Haley is. Nikki Haley is the ultimate politician. She's had four different positions on three different issues at any given time. And so, you know, and, and, and so you kind of know what to expect, which is she's going to play, uh, she's going to play politician all the time. But what that doesn't mean is um, that she's going to do it at the expense of the country over and over again. And the way that you, my argument for that, now I'm not saying it's never going to be at the expense of the country. Sometimes it will be. But my argument as to why she will behave in a way that actually most of the time keeps in mind that the country will continue after her presidency is the fact that she stands on the stage in the debates and she has no problem calling Vladimir Putin a, a, you know, a dangerous dictator and evil. She's no problem with that. She, had, you know, she stands up for Ukraine. She, you know, these, these sorts of things, she's not out there. She's been a little wishy-washy at times, but she's not out there saying, uh, well, the election was stolen. You know, look. Uh, that's, low bar, but an important one. Like, an important yeah. bar. It, it, you, we could say, like, oh, we have a low bar, but yeah, like, we didn't set the bar there. This is what happens when you have Donald Trump. Now, the And I think we'd, if we do lose to her, I think we'd have a great chance to beat her four years later, to be yeah, completely honest. And, um, and we will be here four years later is the most we'll important part. We'll be here. We'll important be here part. to fight it again. There will be an election four years later. I'm 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 happy to predict yeah. that if if Haley wins, we will have an election four years later. I can't say the same thing if Donald Trump were to win re-election. Right. That's where we are as a country. Okay. There are like there are people who have come to this country during the Biden administration as refugees who at the end of the Haley administration would still be in this country. <laughs> now, there won't be a lot more of them, yeah. um, but they'd still be here. And that for right. me like in my life, the people I am close to, that matters a lot. Right. Well, uh, enough of our endorsement of Haley here. Yeah, which is, I'm yeah. Sure a non-endorsement endorsement be of very Haley. popular with the audience. But, okay, uh, quick, two quick stories here. One is Hunter Biden has been called to testify in the House, and he did something really interesting here. He's kind of going on the offensive. So in a letter to Congress, uh, Abby Lowell, who's uh, Biden's lawyer, criticized the inquiry as a partisan crusade, and uh, said that Biden would show up for this December 13th request for a hearing, but only if it were public. Basically saying, look, like, why do you want to put this behind closed doors and then distort my words? Let's just do this out in the open. I think this is smart. Mm -hmm. It is smart. I have a slightly different take on it than most, which is I think, I think that the intended... Percepts that what Hunter Biden wants people to see from this is he a he's not afraid um, of these of these fools like that he'll stand there and take the questions um, and b uh, that he thinks that they're going to manipulate what he says and he'd rather just have you know the sunlight is the best disinfectant transparency etc. I, I I'm sure that those things are are true. There's also a legal strategy here by Abby Lowell that's smart right like in in most 
this is basically like a trial, right? I mean, that's why they want to do a deposition of him. They've subpoenaed him. They want to depose him. And the Republicans are saying, at some later date, of course, we would love to have him testify publicly. But first, we want to do it the way we usually do it. Well, why would you want to do that? You would want to do that for the same reason you want to depose a witness prior to trial, which is you want to know how they're going to answer your questions <laughs> before the jury ever sees you cross-examine them, right? That's why you depose people uh, in a trial. You Sometimes you depose for exploratory purposes, to ask them questions, to see what they know, gain more evidence. But a lot of the time, you just want to know how they answer a certain question so that then your second time at it in front of a jury, you can come out that you can come at that question differently and try and set them up to contradict themselves. Well, question you can better line of attack. Question for you. He's under uh, a criminal indictment, but this mm-hmm. is a civil proceeding in front of the the Congress, right? Now can he plead the yeah, fifth so. in the yeah. civil proceeding when he Oh, I think you can you can plead the fifth anywhere. Oh, great. Okay. Right? Because like you can like you could just say like I can't testify about that because it will in, incriminate me criminally, right? Um, so yeah, he can. Um, I think he doesn't intend to here. Um, but but that's so. I think it's very smart by his lawyers because if they don't have anything really on him other than what we already know, than what the right. prosecution. Have. But as far as as like you know, which it appears he's got some like important criminal charges to face, but it doesn't appear that any of them have to do with selling the presidency or undermining the national security of the country or anything like that. So in that way, for what they're after, they don't have anything. And so what they want is they want to be to have the chance to ask him all these questions and then figure out how to manipulate the answers he gave into new questions, um, to, uh, in, into a new set of questions to, to use what he already said. And, Obviously, he doesn't want to give them that. Um, yeah. And I can see why they want it. I can see why they're saying, oh, well, obviously, we totally agree. At some point, we want him to testify publicly. But what they mean is we want him to testify publicly after we know what he's going to say when we ask him these questions. Yeah, it's a fishing expedition. What they found so far, from what I understand, is they found that Joe Biden's brother, basically, they're going through bank records, right? They're and they they found that Joe Biden's brother sent him a bunch of money, and it turned out he was paying back a loan, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And so, like, obviously, like, I don't know a single person alive who, if you subpoenaed their bank records over the past decade, there wouldn't be money flowing between family members. Like, I lend money to my family members all the time, right? So it's like, right. this is what's going on here. And then, obviously, they're trying to make every little flow of cash be like, well... Hunter Biden. First of all, they haven't even proved that Hunter Biden was committing any crimes in selling access. What they've gotten him on is this gun thing, right? Like, so what they have to prove is that Hunter Biden was selling access, which honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if it happened. They just have provided no evidence of that, right? Um, mm-hmm. By the way, Jared Kushner is selling access right now, which <laughs> right. I want to remind everybody right. of, uh, which somehow is legal, which is a travesty in and of itself. But you'd have to prove that Hunter Biden is selling access and then somehow make Joe Biden responsible for that, which there's just zero percent chance of that happening in any of these. Well, and the the best way to do that is to ask him a bunch of questions, have the transcript, come back to trial and say, now you were asked this, you said this, but what about this? And then use his words against him. It's their best chance to be able to do that. Now, um, to clarify what you were saying about the Fifth Amendment in civil cases, because Salty just put in the chat, I thought in civil cases they use the Fifth against you. That's kind of true. The way it works is, is that you can plead the fifth in a civil case. You can say, they can ask you a question and you can say, I, I have a right against self-incrimination. I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to uh, assert my Fifth Amendment rights. The difference is, in a civil case, unlike in a criminal case, the judge can rule for what's called an adverse inference, where the judge can say, hey, t- to the jury, because they took the fifth, you are allowed to infer that their answer to the question would have been, uh, you know, against their interest, that it would have been bad for them, that the answer would have been this, right? And you can't do that in a criminal case, but you can do that in a civil case. But still, you can take the fifth in a civil in a civil matter. Now, here, I don't think that applies because there's no judge, there's no need for an adverse inference. The adverse inference, if he were to take the fifth, would just be Republican politicians saying, look, he took the fifth, clearly he's guilty. Yeah. 
yeah. court of public opinion, so to speak. Well, in other Biden news, uh, there have been a bunch of articles in the past week about the real issue for Biden. This is how it's framed in Politico is not his age, but the economy. Um, they say that Democrats are panicking about the wrong thing. The New York Times wrote a similar article that focused just on Democrats and how even they don't give him credit for the economy. You and I talked about this a few weeks ago when we just we went through a litany of positive economic news that we've been met with, and that has actually been revised up today. The, they had to revise up the U.S. GDP growth to a 5.2% rate in the third quarter. Like if, if, if Britain or Germany or any of these countries had a 5.2% GDP growth, they would be cheering it on. Um, somehow in this country, people uh, still view the economy negatively. And as we talked about, the wealth accumulation, especially at the bottom levels, is higher than it's ever been in recent memory. Yet those are the voters. If you look at the cross tabs on this one, uh, it's actually the lower you go down the economic rung, uh, the more people are dissatisfied. And if and if you look at it, there's a couple worrisome things in here. One is, and, and this is a, a poll that Politico quotes, is that uh, voters view Republicans as better able to uh, address economic issues in battleground states, and they have more trust in Trump than Biden to do uh, good work on the economy by a 22% point margin. Um, this is a concern. Yeah, I think that grows out of just this public perception that, because I don't know about you, I've had a lot of people say things to me like, yeah, I, I hate Trump, I, et cetera, et cetera, but my 401k mm -hmm. this, or my, you know, and, um, and because the Republicans have been driving a brand for a very long time, that they're the they're the people who know about the economy. And the way they do that is they sort of jujitsu the brand that we put on them, which the brand we, we rightfully, I think, put on them is they're the party for rich people. Well, in America, strangely, we have this idea that rich people are rich because they know what to do about money and they're good at business. Now, in America, in reality anymore, oftentimes rich people are rich because their parents were doing pretty well, right? Like, like usually, no, not always, but more often than not, you give me, you pick a random rich person and then you show me their mom and dad and probably they did decently well, right? And, and so the problem there is that people then get this perception that Republicans are better at the economy. It's so why we also have to deal with this longstanding and I think erroneous idea that Republicans are better at national security just because they seem to like killing people more uh, on, on a, you know, and they, and it's, I mean, it doesn't. I don't have a better way to put that. So that's a problem. The other problem here is that I think the demographic economically of persuadable voters has changed. We talk a lot about suburban voters um, who I would regard as middle to upper middle class for the most part, right? If they're in the suburbs. Um, but there's also a lot of folks like that you need, you're not going to win their counties, but you need to... Uh, get a decent vote in their counties, and that's rural, uh, more low-income folks. And in, in the past, those were the votes that Democrats were holding on to to keep from losing those parts of the country by so much. If you go back to like the late 90s, um, or 92 or 96, when Clinton was running, um, those were the voters that Clinton as a Democrat, or I as a Democrat in Missouri, was hanging on to, uh, while other Democrats were not hanging on to them, for whatever reason. And then if you go to like 96, when, when um, he's running for re-election and the economy is looking uh, better, or at least, or 98, when he's trying to survive impeachment, what I remember about that time, I was 17 years old, is I remember people saying things like, well, you know, there, every, car, every household uh, seems to have two cars in the driveway now, you know, which was a bigger deal for folks climbing the economic ladder. But the voters who are in that category, what's changed is they're more likely to be reliable Democrats now. The voters who are going to have two cars in the driveway, et cetera, live in the suburbs, um, they're still persuadable and they still matter a lot. But hanging on to the lower income voters that people like Bill Clinton was able to take for granted because unions were stronger, because people understood to a much greater degree that Democrats stand up for people who work for a living and you know receive a paycheck instead of sign the paycheck. That ethic was much stronger and much more easily understood in our popular culture then. And I think that's what makes it so dangerous that no matter how much the economy improves, is that folks at the lower end, uh, like the bottom of the middle class and below, 
aren't feeling it to the same degree. And that's really dangerous for us. Yeah. And I think one, yeah, I agree. I actually think in this election too, like low income urban voters, although going to go overwhelmingly for Biden, are vulnerable um, either to not. Yeah, they're not going for as much. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a that's just an issue we need to to deal with. I was I was somewhere the other day, and I was I was talking to um, I was at like a kid's. I was at my son's uh, practice, and and I was talking to one of the other parents, uh, and politics came up. Uh, This is an African American dad of one of the kids on the team, and he was telling me he's like, you know, I've always been a Democrat. He was. He was like, you met Obama, right? And I was like, yeah. And, and we had a conversation where he just wanted to know everything about Obama, clearly, like, just like me, looks up to Obama a lot. And then the conversation just took a turn I didn't expect, where he was like, you know, I've been telling my friends lately, like, I'm trying to climb into a different tax bracket. I don't really care that I'm supposedly supposed to vote for Biden. Like, I'm thinking about voting for Trump. And I had to, like, you know, it was a, I had to, proceed pretty gently in that conversation because i didn't i didn't want to come across like a guy that was like no like the white guy who's like no how could you you know like that's a ridiculous condescending approach but it was interesting because i've seen this a little bit in polling and it was the first time i had seen it anecdotally and and yeah it was like it it mirrored what i've seen in the polling yeah actually i had a a similar but on a different issue conversation at dinner with a friend of mine who's an Arab American and he has only voted for Democrats his entire life reliably and said he if the election were held today he wouldn't vote for Biden and he said that in places like Dearborn and parts of Michigan Biden is going to lose a lot of support over the Israel-Palestine issue which definitely made the hair on the back of my neck stand up but there okay so in this poll there's what's interesting is that People name increased costs of housing and everyday expenses as the top of their list. So this comes as inflation's coming down. Housing continues to be an obstinate issue here, in part because of the tools that we use to fight inflation, which is increased interest rates. And in this country, we're just not great at building new housing. Uh, so I was thinking about this, and if I were Biden, and I don't know why the government doesn't do this. I'm sure that there are legal hurdles to come through, but the government could do anything it really puts its mind to and at least get caught trying. It's like, why not offer low interest rates on first-time or primary home purchases, right? You can come up with whatever rules so people aren't using it to build like the third or fourth home or whatever. But be like, if this is the only house you own, whether it's your first time or you're moving to a new house, you you can get a 3% interest uh, mortgage from the government. I feel like that would be super popular. And it also would in no way uh, contribute to the types of inflation that the Fed is concerned about, right? Which is mostly around other goods. And even on housing, uh, there are ways that you can incentivize that to do new construction. So you could say, we will only... And this could ha- have a, an impact on the overall prices in the market. You could say you can only use this for a, uh, a house that is you know, new construction, yada, yada. It could lead to a wave of new construction. Or you could have price caps to say, all right, this, this mortgage is only available if the house like, um, didn't appreciate in value by a certain amount over the past few years. You know what I'm saying? Like You could do it in a way that doesn't lead to like, inflation in the housing market, which we're seeing despite high interest rates anyway. And like the biggest inflation you see in housing costs is due to rent or mortgage payments, not the overall cost of the house. And both of those things would ostensibly be much lower in a world where everybody gets access to those cheap mortgages. I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, clearly you can do it because you can target all sorts of things. I mean, I got my first house was on uh, a loan that I got from the VA at a lower interest rate, which obviously got because I'm a veteran. Um, So you can target certain things there's nothing to stop you from it um I, it's an interesting idea um I and, be very and i think to your point and it, yeah and it would cut across demographics as well um and and go right at like the working people who are traditionally part of the democratic coalition but the the other thing i wanted to say about why i think it's a struggle to make the argument about biden's obvious accomplishments on the economy is that we have the shortest attention span we've ever had as a country Yep. And the and the term, uh, what have you done for me lately, has never been more <laughs> operative in our politics. I mean, like, if you go back through it, I mean, recovering from COVID, the, you know, the um, rescue plan. The, I mean, there's so, 
what just happened with regard to uh, United Auto Workers and and with the with the big three. I mean, just there's so many things you could go through and say, boy, this has been an enormously effective presidency and an enormously important economic recovery. You can absolutely make that case. And even somebody who has felt that, uh, who's whether you think it's something you credit to presidents or not, who sees the gas prices are lower, everything like that. I just, you know, at the end of the day, when you flip on your phone, when you scroll over to Apple News or wherever you get your news, the first thing you see might be about Taylor Swift. Right. It might be about whatever it is that's in the news at that moment. And we're so much more inundated with information than we've ever been that COVID, the COVID economic downturn and recovery from it feels like a decade ago in a way. Yeah. And it, it certainly doesn't feel like it's been in the same presidential administration, the same term. And, and that's why, unfortunately, I think, I think that the way to win this election is going to be what you have said before, which is to be the incumbent party and run like you're the challenger, which is to run against the extremism of the Supreme Court, to run against the extremism of, of the right uh, with regard to abortion and, and um, extremism on democracy and everything else. Because ultimately, if the economy doing better is a factor in this election, it's going to be a factor because people say, well, it's not so bad that I feel that I have to replace this person. I just don't think that we're going to get, no, maybe we will. I hope we will. I don't think that we'll be able to get to a place, not in the economy, but in the perception of the economy in the next year where people go, the economy is so good. We've got to continue what we're doing. I think it is possible to be in a place where they go, the economy is good and I wouldn't want to risk changing, but more likely they're going to go, the economy is good enough and I'm scared enough of what they want to do on things like abortion and, you know, um, civil rights and voting rights and whether we're going to have elections in the future. The economy's good enough that I don't want to take that risk. That's where I think you get to in order to win. Yeah, I totally agree. Like you want people to like this is a more change versus more of the same election. And we've, we've got to get people really excited about more of the same or at least content enough yeah. with it, right? That's or, the, or none of the previous. Yeah. You know, not going backwards um, yeah. would be, you know, so. All right. Uh, with that said, um, what's going on with you? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm training for a powerlifting competition in December. So I've just been I uh, saw a little of that lifting, on lifting Instagram. Some heavyweights and I'm both like, I'm in the, the dual mode of, having to cut weight to get into like a weight class I can actually win and trying to get stronger at the same time, which is always fun. Like that's the two super hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get super there though. Hard to do. I'm within two pounds now of where I need to be. And then I just need to stay there. Um, create a little bit of, of, of room. Uh, but then, uh, stay there for the next two and a half weeks, which I, if we, I already know I'll be able if to do we weren't, if we weren't live right now and, you know, we're going to put this out on audio as well, I would absolutely have a geek out conversation with you about how much weight you got to get down to and how much you, but I, I, I don't want us to be completely not relatable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's the conversation you and I will have after that. Um, but that's awesome. I you know, when I watch your Instagram, the place where you go tone house uh, with the red, the red lights, yes. is it also hot in there as well? Is that the uh, idea? It's all right. Sometimes it's hot, but mostly it's, it's not, but it's, it, yeah, it looks like a sauna, doesn't it? But essentially, yeah, why, it's like a bunch of red? former, I have no idea, but it's a bunch of former college football players who w create this sort of high, like fast paced environment where you've got a lot of people just motivating you to lift more than you would on your oh, own. Oh, that's cool. And it certainly works. Shout out to Alonzo and, and the whole team over there. They're great. And I, th I know some of them listen to this podcast. But what I like is like, you just want like a group of people who, you know, motivate you. I know you work out mostly in your, in your house and I know you and your wife are both pretty good at that, like motivating each other. And you know, when the fitness posse is back on, that's part of what we do, but it's like, there's nothing like having a bunch of people yelling and like cheering you on and then sometimes talking trash, depending on who my friend is in the gym. And you're just like, you, you're, you're moving your numbers, you know, or even just watching you like yeah. just stand, even if you don't know them, just standing there, it's completely like when you're like, I really, I should do this last set. It's so much easier to come up with an internal excuse not to 
when there's no one else there. I think they call that and the so, Hawthorne effect. Yeah, like if you're observed, you do better. Yeah. I believe it because so I, I do work out mostly downstairs in our gym, but uh, one day a week I go work out at this uh, this place. It's it's a it's a baseball training place where it's funny this because where you like, were in jumping the winter, on boxes yesterday. I saw you doing a box jump. Yesterday. That's a that's a different place where I was doing um, PT for my shoulder for throwing, and I just there was this box, and I was like, I wonder if I can jump on this because I'm still a child, and uh, <laughs> and but I go to this place where it's funny because in the winter. It is me and a bunch of um, mostly minor league professional baseball players who they're from here. And so this is where they work out in the off season. And they're all mostly literally half my age. Um, and so it's, it's very funny because um, I, when I'm listening to their conversations, like, you know, none of them have kids. And also they're minor leaguers. So like they haven't made their money yet. So their conversations are about like where you can order your uber from where it's it's not a surge right so you can save ten dollars and uh and then of course other stuff that i wouldn't want to repeat on air because they're 22 year old dudes um and it's just kind of funny to sit there and kind of overhear it while i'm like you know where i'm doing my when i'm in my 20th minute of stretching before my weights routine <laughs> and they're like in there they just get in there take off their shoes and start throwing a baseball as hard as they can you know <laughs> like so it, it is kind of kind of funny um, Either, good that's internet, awesome when, when the, is the competition it's uh december 19th i think so right before i would okay. go away for the break it's great it's great the timing because i did it last year and it's like it's a great incentive to like get myself in check before I go off to surf in Costa Rica, which I know is very relatable, but um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's always good to have numbers behind things. So right? I know, I know how much weight I have to lose and I know how much I want to be able to lift. And it's just that clarity always helps me make better decisions. When it comes to fitness, you and I kind of live for numbers and data. It makes yes. it fun. It's a game. Yes. Uh, so my quick little one for us is a family thing, which is fun, which is, um, Everybody knows who listens to this that my son is very into baseball, as we are as a family. But lately, he has started to also become interested in like uh, debate. Now, not like he—he's only ten, so that he's not able to do an activity in debate. But at his school, he's going to be able to do that in middle school, and and he knows like that's how his parents met, and that we were pretty good at it. That's amazing. And so he started to ask questions about it, and. And then he and I watched like my cousin Vinny the other night. And so now he's been doing this thing where he'll be like, okay, give me a topic. And then he'll, 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 and, and give me which side I'm to argue. And he's getting pretty good at it. And there was a thing, and he's also been uh, asking his teachers, like when there's, when the class can't agree on something, he's been asking his teachers permission for him to stand up in front of the class and deliver like a persuasive speech to them about it and see if he can convince them. And what's cool about that among, other things, if that's adorable, he's 10 years old and he's doing that is there was a thing the other night where it was the first time we'd seen him really do this. And he just started, he was like, all right, when you think about it, and, he, and he's like, you know, hand gestures and the whole thing. And you know, truce, so you can kind of picture this. And Diana and I both got really teary because look, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm great at everything, but that is a gift that she and I have. Like we both, we both have that gift, the gift of like, charisma stand in front of an audience and be persuasive and and hold their attention and to the and it was sort of at the same moment we both realized that he has that gift now he'll have to practice a lot to get really good at it but you can see it like you can just see the gift and it was just really cool to like know that he has that and that if he chooses to use it like he can do things with that. It was just really, really neat to see. Oh, it's Got amazing. Me kind of I didn't even realize they did debate in middle school. That's going to be really cool to see. Um, yeah, policy debate or or leaky. I don't know what it is. I assume it's probably policy debate. Um, but you uh, and Diana were anyway, policy. So. Is that how you met? You guys did policy debate. Uh, yeah, we and that and speaking. The first time I ever saw my wife, she was giving a speech, uh, and now that's what she does for a living. Um, wow, she was seventeen at the time. Um, and so was I, by the way. Before people think there's some sort of scandal here. Um, so, <laughs> all well, right. Well, that's cool. I've got one thing for yeah. the audience. This is not necessarily a grab yeah. although we could call it that, is uh, Spotify today is giving everybody, if you're on Spotify, it gives you this thing that says your year in review. And what it will tell you is what are your top five most listened to podcasts. Mm, My request call. of you is if you are, if, if the if majority 54 is in your top five, 
then tag me and Jason in it. We will repost it for you. Uh, and Jason has a gazillion followers. I've got um, my few believers out there. Shout out to all of you out there. Um, you can you can tag us. Uh, I'm at Ravi M Gupta. Jason, you're what at Jason Kander, right? Yeah, on uh, yep. on all the stuff, same as you. So good call. Yeah, good, word. good thinking. Good promotion. All right, and remember to subscribe to Majority Fifty Four wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority Fifty Four. Please leave a five star review. As Ravi just said on all social media, he's at Ravi M Gupta, and I'm at Jason Kander. We uh, thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. <laughs>